Welcome to another edition of Old School Guns, the podcast that tells you exactly like it is. And this is episode number 178, 178. And as always, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to me at kbmakel at aol.com, kbmakel at aol.com, or leave them in the comments section on Podbean which is probably where you're listening to this. We got kicked off YouTube, so there aren't a whole lot of choices. Anyway, well, let's get down. Interesting gun news this week. Very interesting gun news. First of all, the criminal Hunter Biden um, is finally being charged on three counts of the gun thing. Uh, bought a gun when he... You, you know, this this is the long story. He bought the gun. He, was, he lied on the... Uh, uh, 4473 saying he was not illegally addicted to to you know drugs um, he had the gun he even admitted in his book he had the gun while he was under the influence doing things he disposed of the gun by throwing it in a dumpster next to a school so the corrupt justice department decided to you know basically give him immunity from all future prosecution put him in a diversion program for something else they'd put us in jail for and he just had to pay his IRS debts and he was going to walk away scot-free fortunately there's at least one judge who hasn't lost her mind and looked at that and said no this is a piece of trash and and kicked out the agreement because it was garbage so anyway he is going to have to face the music on that which which is nice which is nice because you know what we're tired of the dual tier justice system now don't think for a minute that he is gonna that this is going to be anything more than an inconvenience he'll hire the the best the best democratic nazi party lawyers that he can find uh will come they'll get to his defense they'll chisel this down and and he'll basically walk He'll basically walk, but at least it'll inconvenience him. If it were any of the rest of us, uh, we'd be looking at the world through, you know, vertical bars, you know. Um, that That's just the way it is. That's just the way it is. And that's the way it's got to stop. Um, and it's the way that and the Democratic Party doesn't see anything wrong with that. No mainstream Democrats are saying, yeah, Hunter needs to face the music and, and come to justice. Oh, no, no, no. They don't say that. You know, makes you really wonder about the Democratic Party, you know. I don't know. This is going to be an interesting, it's going to be an interesting election coming up, that's for sure. Okay, the obviously delusional and probably drug-abusing governor of New Mexico, because Albuquerque surprisingly has a crime problem wouldn't have anything to do with all the illegals that are swarming across the border wouldn't have anything to do with shackling the police when they're trying to enforce the law wouldn't have anything to do with a shitty prosecutor that doesn't prosecute people but she decided that the problem is legally legal licensed concealed carry holders so she tried to suspend that right that you could not carry concealed or or open, I suppose, um, in New Mexico or at least in Albuquerque for the next 30 days. Now, this has nothing to do with crime. Understand what this is. This has nothing to do with crime. It has nothing to do with Albuquerque. It has everything to do with disarming law-abiding citizens. 
It's like saying, well, we have a drunk driving problem, so all members of the American Automobile Association need to be held liable for that. It's insanity. It's crazy and it's insanity. Uh, this is this is simply another way of trying to infringe on the you know right to keep and bear arms, the Constitution of the United States, part of the Bill of Rights. It's her way of trying to infringe upon it. The good news is, is some judges said no, you you can't do this. Now, I'm sure it'll get wrangled until they finally find a friendly judge. But this is insanity. Your rights can't just be suspended by some idiot elected official who says, well, I know better than the Constitution. In this case, she's going against her state constitution as well as the national constitution. Why is this person in office? This is the problem of our failed education system. An education system that just can't seem to educate people. You know, if she had a civics class, she might understand it. Uh, same thing with these people who said, well, we don't have to obey the Supreme Court. Well, I'm, I'm sorry you do. You know, that's the way our government's set up. And they, they just don't like it because somehow it sits on their reproductive rights. But, you know, it's, it's insanity. They don't even understand how our government works. So how can they hold a position in it? How can they? Uh, it's like the, there's another thing too. You see this, there's been a national thing kind of, COVID kind of brought this on, but it's also been a few, it's also been the tranny issue. Um, you know, there was a little girl who went into a girl's bathroom and was raped by a male student who was identifying as a girl, went into the girl's bathroom. When the father reported it, when nobody took action, he showed up to a school board meeting and they they called the police on him and and this was the guy in virginia and of course they beat him up a little bit then they yank him out of there and then the fbi says yeah this, this is why parents are domestic terrorists fbi needs to go fbi and justice department i'm afraid i'm afraid they're going, just gone too far down the road it certainly isn't ephraim zimbalist jr anymore like we used to see on television it's it's uh more like third world thuggery if you ask me but anyway, um, they, the, people have been you know, going saying, hey, what's happening in our schools? And one of the things they don't like is, um, hey, there's, there's all of this very sexual, pornographic literature going into schools, and they're, they're targeting younger and younger kids. I mean, they're talking to kids, this, and this is kind of a tangent, but... They're telling kids who believe that on December 24th of every year, uh, a fat guy in a red coat and a white beard puts toys in a sleigh and travels all around the world, slipping down chimneys, leaving presents for everyone. Okay, Kids that actually believe that are being told about gender. You, you can't do that. They, if you can convince them that Santa Claus exists... You, you can't have a meaningful conversation about gender and homosexuality and, and binary and identifying as a girl and keeping this as a secret from the parents. You know, teachers have gone way overboard. Now, I realize it's not every teacher, but the teachers 
participating in this have gone way over the line, way, way, way over the line. And part of where they've gone is they put these smut books in the school libraries. And, you know, face it, that's not where they need to be. And, and in fact, uh, Repres uh, Senator John Kennedy, um, I think, he's, I can't remember where he's from. I, I don't know if it's Louisiana or Alabama or someplace. He read a passage from one of these books and it described a male homosexual encounter of, of very young men. And, you know, this is, does not need to be in the schools. I'm sorry. Now, if parents want their kids to read that and want to go buy them the book or take it out from another library, hey, have at it. It's, it's, they're your kids. But to put this in a library in a school that has a shield of anonymity and access that parents can't get to is wrong. And that's why we regulate the books that are in there. And, you know, it's like all the other garbage books. How many of these books are garbage? I, I remember when I was in school and, and still there's Native Son, which was written back in the probably the 20s. There was Black Boy. There was all these other books about basically the, this racial equality anger business. Nobody would read those books if they weren't required reading in high school. I mean, they've, they've put these things on life support. Um, and, and, you know, that's how I think. And I'm the guy who said one of the best books I ever read was um, an autobiography of Roy Campanella, who was a great baseball player, had one of the most tragic things happen to him was in a car accident. Because in the late 1950s, passenger safety wasn't a high priority in car design. So he was in a car and he was he was terribly injured and was in a wheelchair and how he came back from that and the kind of person he was before the accident and the kind of person he was which were outstanding an outstanding individual were was really inspirational to me i remember reading that saying i'd much rather read this than some anger book or some other book and you know you're talking to a guy hey my favorite baseball players were willie mays willie mccovey i like love those guys um, there were a lot of great, great stories out there that could have told come overcoming adversity in, in a racial, in a racial setting, uh, with a racial, you know, situation that were much better, much more positive and would say, yeah, this is a really good thing. This is good stuff. And people, it would give people inspiration and hope because everybody comes up against barriers in life and you know list reading those stories would really help but anyway they put these smut books and these hate books and all these other things um, they put all this crap into schools and school libraries and make them required reading I think all of that needs to be reviewed and uh, you know the stuff that should be in an, in an adult bookstore does need to be banned and I would say burn them you know I would say Burnham. You know, that also brings me to, I haven't watched it in months. So I thought, you know, I'm kind of bored. I'll watch a, I'll watch an in-range TV Q&A. So I, I cranked up the latest one and I, I just, I was appalled how leftist it, it all was. I mean, just how horrible 
this guy Carsada and some of the people he brings on. And I kind of went back through the, there's one, I believe it's this tactical girlfriend who is a, who's a tranny, you know, now that's their business, but I, I don't really buy into the effect that, and I think what they're trying to do is say, well, gun ownership kind of spans all these differences. I'm not sure that's the case. And I'm not sure that I'm really comfortable with some of this stuff. Now, they got a right to be there, and they can they can be that. I, I choose not to participate with that. I choose not to. That's not the part of the gun culture that I like. And it's, it's very, very weird. That guy's, you know, his, his brutality matches have kind of caught on. And... You know, if you're in the demographic where you can do that, they're fine. I I am unfortunately past it. Not that I can't do it, but the risk of injuring myself. I, I can't. I don't know that I can throw a kettlebell. Practice throwing a kettlebell around without without hurting myself. Um, there's some of that. You know, there's some of the things that they do, um, where if it were 20 years ago or 30 years ago, hey, I'd be all in on and I could do, but you know, hey, we all have to realize at a certain point, you know, um, your body becomes a little more frail and more susceptible to injury and recovery from injury um, may not be complete. So, you know, it can't do that. So those things have caught on, but absolutely nothing else that this guy is into has, uh, has caught on. He went from, I think, a very popular channel to now people look at him, the, the weird appearance. There's, there's just a whole bunch of things that are... Uh, they're very off-putting and um you know this this pandering to leftists is is one of them oh on a good note looks like the henry revolvers got a great write-up in guns and ammo magazine yeah surprise there huh you makes makes me wonder makes me want to look for the advertising you know how many how many pages of advertising did henry buy but you know the revolvers look okay uh to me i i they're not my taste the top looks like a colt trooper from the 50s or 60s and the bottom looks like a mash of a colt 1877 lightning or something um now they say the actions are smooth and they're accurate and all that and maybe so, and maybe some people will like them. Um, to me, they're 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 not my cup of tea. I think they would have done better to do one of two things: basically make a copy of the Colt Trooper with some updated lock work. Maybe that would have been pretty cool. Uh, you know, kind of a fifty retro fifties revolver. That would have been cool. Or um, go all the way old west and make it look make it look very old west. So. Uh, but mishmashing the two together just doesn't seem to um, doesn't seem to really do it for me. It'll be interesting to see how they sell. I don't think people who are buying them are necessarily making a mistake. I just think that that's going to be something they look at three or four years from now and say, "What did I buy this for? Why why was I attracted to this?" You know, and we say that as Henry has been very quietly. Um, updating their lever actions with the king's patent loading gate like the winchesters and the marlins have the one on the side you know um 
they've been very quietly adding that to the to their newer models as a matter of fact i'd be surprised i don't know if they even still make them without it now um maybe maybe they do but the ones i've seen and uh you know i i think that's pretty good i still like you know actually i like i hate to admit this but i will admit truth i like the uh henry 4570 uh, lever action i think that's kind of cool now i'd prefer a marlin or even more a winchester 1886 which i think is one of the most beautiful guns that was ever made but the the henry keeps the tube loading you know where you take the tube out of the end of the out of the end of the magazine tube and, and it's got the cutout in the magazine tube and you can drop the cartridges in it's got that and it's got the king's loading gate so um and it's it's a large enough gun it's kind of scaled about right the the criticism i've had for some of their other guns are is that they they're kind of big and clunky for the cartridges they shoot but it's it's a better match for the 4570 so i i kind of dig that i think it's kind of a cool gun um i think that uh i know some people who have one and they love it so uh, i'm sorry that's all it takes man if you like it it's it's up to you but the uh, revolvers yeah they don't really turn me on but you know if they shoot you know sometimes beauty is as beauty does um so if you got one and they shoot very well for you, I'm not going to criticize it. Um, but I'm really thinking that for, well, it's about two-thirds the cost of a Colt Python. So there you go. And you can probably get a Smith 27 for, for just a little bit more. So there you go. All right. Hey, and one more thing. Uh, get if, if you're into old calibers, uh, this, month, this month's edition of Hand Loader Magazine um they've got articles on the 3030 30 luger 9 millimeter largo they've got some stuff in there on a 4570 those are all staple good calibers now the reason why you need to grab that magazine now is because it'll probably be another five years before they revisit those cartridges again um you know that the the dud for me the dud magazines um the dud editions of hand loader are the ones that cover you know um you know short magnums and other things that i don't shoot and i think this one the current one also has one on the uh, 7 by 61 sharp and heart an old old school uh kind of a 50s 60s high performance seven millimeter cartridge that you know there's still a few guns around for it and it's kind of cool to see the uh it's interesting reading even if you don't have one of the guns it's, it's kind of interesting to read about so that is pretty cool that is a very very good addition and i say that hand loader is is really good and uh you know um they've still got a few good writers there's still a few good gun writers out there um even with the passing of bart skelton the son of skeeter skelton he was man was only like 61 or 62 years old that's a real shame um he was a very good gun writer and i think he he he, he i can't remember the magazines he wrote for but i always kind of enjoyed seeing his byline there because i was like well that's kind of a direct a direct connection to skeeter but that's gone too now so uh you know sometimes it pays but you can still get skeeter's books and they're they're well worth the read all right we are now getting to my favorite part of the podcast which is 
questions and answers. And our first one is related to some news we had last podcast. And is, is the replacement of the SA-80 in British, British service a sign that the UK arms industry is dead? Um, well, I'll just say yes. Yes, 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 it is. Um, unless you're a very large and wealthy country, uh, you don't have an arms industry anymore. Uh, France doesn't. UK really doesn't. United States still does, Russia still does, China still does. Uh, but you know, if you're if you're a country that's not in that kind of regional power or superpower league, um, yeah, you're it, it's just too expensive. It's easier to buy off the shelf. In in the in the old days, if you wanted a military rifle, you had to develop it yourself. And countries driven by things like nationalism. Um, trying to get the one-upsmanship on their neighbors and things like that. It, it was very advantageous for like almost all the countries in Europe to have their own arms industry because you could develop what you needed. Um, you could, you could, you know, if you saw that your neighbor, if you were in, if you were in France and you saw what Germany had, you could develop something that was, you know, a leapfrog ahead of them and vice versa. When Germany saw it, they would leapfrog ahead of you. So, you know, there was a lot of that going on. That's that's basically gone away now. And they're saying private companies. And there's two two reasons for that, really. Number one, private companies are they're doing the, the R&D work. They're doing all the, you know, the heavy lifting on the testing and all that. And the other thing is that there's not that many designs out there. Um, you could go for an AK platform, but most Western countries won't. Uh, so you're really, if you're going to get something new, it's going to be kind of a SCAR, FN SCAR or AR based, which are very strongly related designs. It's going to be a design like that. And you can just go to anybody who's making them and uh, definitely uh, get them done. You know, you can just go buy them off the shelf. Yeah, I need 50,000 of those. And you'll get them. And you don't have to worry about a factory. You don't have to worry about all the rest of it. And and basically, you're buying proven technology. It's still advanced technology, but it's proven technology. And, uh, you know, it's a lot less hassle and a lot less, lot less anything else. That's why countries are, you know, developing their own armored vehicles is becoming a, a thing of well, I'll just buy them from them because, you know, that's a better way to go. I don't have to invest all this R&D and all this, all of this effort into it. So that's, that's where it's really going. But the UK arms, here's another reason the UK arms industry is dead. Because they have outlawed weapons. De facto, they've outlawed weapons in the UK. Um, I think you can still have bolt-action rifles, maybe lever-action rifles. But you can't have any semi-automatics. You can't have any handguns. Therefore, if you don't have a culture of arms making and arms use in your country, then you don't have anything. So that's why it's dead. They've got nobody to blame but themselves. Um, they're just marginalized. You know, the UK contract for something, it just kind of goes in the inbox with the, uh, the Senegal <laughs> contract or the, you know, 
<laughs> the Namibia contract. And then there'll be the, you know, the French contract. Then the Canadian contract. You know, I mean, just it, they're just another contract. And their ideas, their innovation, and their ability to produce something is just kind of going away. So that's the deal. Okay, did the M1 rifle really make a difference as opposed to the 1903 Springfield in World War II? Uh, well, it, it did. Um, you can argue as to whether or not the M1 really... When you fire an M1 in a Springfield side by side, you say, yeah, the M1 is much better. When you're talking about, you know, men hitting the beach, and we did invade, um, you know, Gua the Marines invaded Guadalcanal with Springfields. So, you know, it, it, it's not like it was a useless, worthless rifle. It, it was it was okay. The, the magic of the M1 was twofold. Number one is it distributed a high rate of fire. The Germans, who had bolt-action rifles for the preponderance of the war, you know, they used those rifles to protect their very excellent MG42 machine gun. So the MG42 machine gun was really the focal point of their firepower. Um, in, a, in a similar sized U.S. formation, you, you had a machine gun, but you also had Browning automatic rifles and you had these semi-automatic rifles and a smattering of submachine guns and a few people had carbines, you know. But you had this much more distributed firepower. And it all depends which one you, you believe in. I believe distributed firepower is always a better idea because if I were one of the, uh, the grunts down in the, uh, the trenches, I would rather have an M1 than a 1903. That's just the way that goes. So it, it did make a difference. Uh, one of the things is that, uh, you know, yes, a the sand could disable an M1 if you're doing a beach operation or you're in the desert. But they they did a um, they did a test, and one of the big things they figured out was even if you had to manually operate the M1, um, it, it was no worse than a Springfield. So there you go. So it's. You know, you would still have 75% of your rifles were semi-automatic. The other 25%, if you got sand in them and they were, they were, had to be manually operated, well, you know, you could, you could do that. You know, you could, you could really do that and it would still, still be as, those individual rifles would be the equivalent of a Springfield. So there you go. And I believe that's in Hatcher's Book of the Grand. I believe that's where I read that. Okay, when did the U.S. military figure out intermediate cartridges were the future for the service rifle? Um, I think I've talked about this before, and it's pretty interesting. You know, they never got it at the end of World War II. The U.S. military would have was very pleased with the M1 rifle. They were a victim of the success of the M1 rifle. And they said, you know what, a future rifle... Uh, needs to build on the success of the M1. So therefore, um, what we need is a more efficient cartridge and we can design a rifle and a machine gun around those. And for some bizarre reason that no one can explain, that's not written anywhere, they said, you know what? The M14 will replace the BAR, not outlandish, but, but really not realistic. It also replaced the submachine gun and the carbine. And you kind of look around, you go, well, wait a minute, that's exactly the opposite thinking 
that they had pre-war when they said, you know what, we need something. Not everybody can handle a service rifle. Not everybody, truck drivers, mortar crewmen, radio men, everybody, you know, we had different weapons because we had people whose job was not primarily to shoot at the enemy. They could, if they had to, they could to defend themselves. They, they could in a pinch, but they were supposed to operate some other piece of equipment that was critical to success. So they, they completely reversed that and said, we just want one rifle. That's, and it's going to do everything. And the, they tried the M15, which was just an M14, didn't even have a heavy barrel. It was just an M14 in a stock with a pistol grip and a bipod. And um, they proceeded to, they proceeded to, you know, <laughs> try to use that as a BAR. It was an abysmal failure, overheated too fast, uncontrollable. Um, they, they gave, they, they still kept the M3 A1 submachine gun and armored vehicle crewmen and, and other people still had it because, you know, the M14 was too clunky to use inside a tank or a tank recovery vehicle or anything else. And so we, we, we stuck with that and, and we basically compelled NATO to adopt it. Not that they had any really any better ideas. The seven millimeter goofball cartridge in the the British had in their stupid bullpup that was all stupid and it was not going to work. Um, doing eight by thirty three Kurtz in an in a kind of a prototype FNFAL was not going to work. Okay, so there was no really better idea out there on on the uh, um, NATO or Allied side. The Warsaw Pact and the Soviet Union said, we, we already figured this out. We, we essentially uh, have patterned on the German intermediate cartridge, and that worked very, very well for them. And in fact, it still works well today. So they, they were ahead of the curve, and, and we still had a battle rifle and a battle rifle cartridge, even though we tried to make it smaller, more efficient, and everything else, um, just didn't get it. We didn't really get the intermediate cartridge thing until, and it was Curtis LeMay saw a demonstration of the AR-15 and he said, that's kind of what we're looking for. Uh, for guarding SAC bases and air bases in general, I suppose, um, the M1 carbine was being used, but the carbine was out of production and face it, it the, the Air Force was a very forward-looking and very modern organization. So they, they didn't want the old, out-of-service, out-of-production M1 carbine. They didn't want it anymore. And they didn't think it was a very good weapon to defend the base against saboteurs or, or you know, some kind of direct action, special operations thing or whatever else. So the AR-15 was there. Um, LeMay tried to buy a bunch of them. I think he kind of got turned down. They finally forced it, and then the Army and the Air Force got them. And, and for years, they had different versions. Um, the Air Force version did not have a forward assist. And yeah, that was MC they had the M16 instead of the A1. The A1 had the forward assist and, you know, who knows what else. And you know, there was a weird photograph that was circulating 
after 9-11. It's when, uh, remember after 9-11, they put National Guardsmen, uh, Army and Air, and Air National Guard, Army National Guard, Air National Guard, um, into the airports to provide additional security. There's a picture of an Air Force guy, and he's got an original M16 without a forward assist. Uh, looks like, looks they look just like the Colt SP-1. Look just like it. Um, and, you know, that was, you would think, wow, that's 10 years after Desert Storm when we had phased, we had phased the, uh, we should have had the M16 phased out in favor of the M16A2 way, way before that. But, you know, it shows you it takes time. And sometimes uh, units that are lower priority get stuck with older equipment. So um, that's just kind of the way that is. I mean, in the 90s, and probably even into the early 2000s, until all the Singars frequency hopping radios came in, uh, I remember seeing ANPRC 25s, not even the not even the 77s, but the 25s uh, in reserve units. So, um, and there were reserve units that gave up their 1911s in 1995. You know, last of them left, I think, in 1995. So there you go. You know, that's years after they should have been replaced. Uh, they still still had them out there. Okay, so. But anyway, to get back to the uh, to get back to the question, um, it was really LeMay and the Air Force. Really, that was the impetus to get the intermediate uh, cartridge. Uh, the experience in Vietnam in the jungle. That hey, the M14 with a wooden stock. Hey, they had some stop stock warp stock warping issues. They they came out with a plastic stock for it, which is not a bad deal. Uh, the plastic stock was not a bad deal. Um, but, you know, they, they needed a weapon that was lighter, faster firing, had select fire. Most of the M14s were blocked from some select fire. So we had all that. And uh, it was really the Air Force and LeMay that kind of pushed us into the intermediate cartridge rifle realm. And I don't know that we're staying there. Um, this 277 Fury... 6.8 whatever they call 6.8 by 51 i guess um if that gets widely if that becomes the standard rifle and i think they call it the m5 carbine if that becomes a standard rifle that's a throwback man that is a big throwback and i'm not really sure that's a great idea i'm not sure that's a great idea at all but um there is an impetus to get thrown back um, you know, and that's, that's out there. So we'll see how that goes. Okay. Next question. Is the PCC pistol caliber carbine or the SMG that's submachine gun effective enough for a riot scenario where the rule of law is absent for 24 to 48 hours? That kind of goes back to what I was saying that, you know, in disaster preparedness, you know, you can, you can, not only be facing, you know, the, the earthquake or the, the asteroid hitting the earth or the solar flare, which wipes out all technology. You can not only be facing those, the nuclear war, not only facing those things, but you could be facing the Kyle Rittenhouse, uh, Kenosha, Wisconsin, the Rodney King riots, some of the George Floyd riots, 
all those things you could be facing that where you are all of a sudden in a no man's land where there's no police there's no military there's no rule of law and it could be that way for 24 to 48 hours um, I would say a PCC is not a bad weapon to have um, I would prefer though I would go with an intermediate cartridge rifle but depending on where you are and how you live uh, that might not be the best choice so um, definitely a pistol caliber carbine is viable I I myself find them somewhat limiting but then again I'm, I'm kind of a rifle guy so um, you know I'd much rather have an M1 Grand than a pistol caliber carbine but anyway um, no they're not a bad choice they are much more economical to feed and practice with if uh, a person has an adversity to muzzle blast and recoil uh, they're definitely a good option so I would say that yeah it's it's good if you can't get one of those I would get a Ruger 10-22 and 25 round magazines and you know hope for the best that's what I would do all right here is the next question have you made paper patched bullets for black powder cartridge rifles well the <laughs> that's that's an easy one no I have not uh, I currently have as one of my projects which I've been sadly neglecting um, I'm planning on trying that for Martini Henry and 4570 I've got some loads worked up now for both of those and the 4570 is in a trapdoor it's not a um, it's not like a modern you know lever action or anything so I, I plan to I plan to use these loads see how they shoot and maybe go with some um, go with some paper patch cartridges if I, I in the past I've gotten great accuracy out of just regular lube regular lube bullets in 4570 so um, using a black powder lube of course so I don't really see a reason that I would need it there but uh, the Martini Henry probably would benefit by that although mine has a pretty tight bore so it's one of the reasons one of the things I'm gonna do is is go ahead and reevaluate that see how if I'm unhappy with the accuracy I'm getting and I and it's not me and it's not some other factor uh, I may try paper patching to improve that if I need to so that's kind of where I am with it I don't I've never heard of and I don't think anybody uses a paper patch on like a 3840 or 4440 or anything like that I just don't think there's a need to so um, you know those those guns just don't have the range uh, to to do that so yeah that's uh, that's that's where I am with paper patching not a not a really big deal um, but I will if I and I do know one guy who did it see he's actually even paper patched his shoots a K I don't know if it's a K31 or a um, 19 what are they K1911 the Swiss rifles uh, he's done those and I don't know that uh, he's paper patched those and those are like 30 caliber so uh, they seem to work for him so well, that's pretty decent okay here's the next question is the retro AR fad over yeah I really kind of think so um, certainly all the uh, the excitement has died down but you can still get you know decent retro ARs out there you know sometimes you might have to build them I think I think the uh, and I haven't checked in a while but 
I know Brownells stopped making the Proto AR, which I thought was by far the coolest one. I, you know, that's the one with the uh, the charging handles, the trigger on the in the in the handguard. You know, the that or not handguard, but the uh, um, uh, what do they call it? The, the sight handle you know it could because that was the original function of that you know the the what we call the carrying handle was actually designed just to protect that trigger um and when they went to the rear uh charging handle uh, it was a little bit superfluous other than it just kind of was a carrying handle and held aside it's never actually meant to be carrying handle um you know it was one of those one of those things um, and in fact, when I was in the service, in the infantry, no one carried an M16 by the carrying handle because it really wasn't a carrying handle. And in fact, if you saw anybody doing that, um, there was usually a non-commissioned officer which jumped all over them and said, no, this is how you carry, you know, you kind of carried it by the, uh, uh, the handguard slip ring, which was the center of balance. It, you know, if you're going to carry it around, you carry it like that, or you carry it slung on your shoulder. You don't carry it around like a lunch pail um, by, the, by the, quote, carrying handle. So that, that was never designed to be a carrying handle. It was designed to protect that trigger um, charging handle. So there you go. Um, trigger charging handles, outstanding. I was out shooting mine the other, uh, well, a couple of weeks ago. And it's it just so such an enjoyable thing to use. I've always felt that the rear-mounted charging handle that you see that, that's on all ARs now, except, except for these. Um, I always felt that was always a little awkward. I never really cared for it. But I really like the trigger one. Now, I see why they don't like it i can see why the army did not adopt it uh, if you're wearing gloves or something you know operating the charging handle would be difficult and also they had a had to it also created another opening in the receiver that had to be protected and, and they actually figured out you know kind of how to do that but um you know it's a um it's really very cool i mean they're they're very very cool brownell should have kept making i mean that's one of the few guns there's two guns that, at the minute i saw them i bought them and one was the uh dsa israeli fal as soon as they announced it the same day they announced it i put in my order and paid the bucks <laughs> but um i did that and then the uh um next one was that i was going to buy one of the ar-10s i was always fascinated by the AR-10s even as a little kid um, I saw one of my father had my father had a gun book and it, it had you know AR-10s in it and it was kind of you know very mysterious and and everything and I always kind of liked looking you know always was fascinated by them and would read what I could when Brownells had the AR-10 I'm like man I'm getting one of those I'm getting one of those and I was getting ready I was within a couple of weeks of pulling the trigger on one of those pulling the trigger there's yeah no pun intended and the uh dsa israeli came out and i said no i want that I've, I've always wanted one of those i'm getting that first so when i went zipping around um i was thought man you know i really don't need another 7.62 
battle rifle, but I've always wanted the AR-10, so I'll get it. And then I saw the Proto AR and 5.56, and I said, that's really the one I want. And uh, as it turned out, I think I, I made a really good choice. So, you know, that's that's very cool. Uh, I'm really happy with that. And, uh, uh, you know, is it a perfect copy? Well, the, the handguards are plastic. They're not the uh, uh, fiberglass. Um, I know the in-range TV guys basically sprayed it with clear coat. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not that far into it. But what I love about it is it has this 50s science fiction cool look to it that I really like. And I also really like uh, the fact it's got the duckbill flash hider. Um, and true to form, it did not have a bayonet lug. So, hey, there's no bayonet lug on it. But everything about it is very, very cool. And uh, I like it so much. So anyway, that's the uh, that's really the thing on the uh, retro ARs. I, th I still think, you know, they're so lightweight. They're so, so easy to use. Um, the iron sights are so good. And I think I think people really missed a bet by going going in different directions with it. Um, the heavier you make an AR, the more it becomes just like any other rifle. But that lightweight um, A1 or, you know, the M16 AR-15, M16A1, AR-15A1 type rifle is just a pleasure. It's got 20-inch barrel. It hits hard with a 5.56, 55-grain uh, bullet. There, there's just so much goodness with that that I... Um, I really, uh, really like it. Um, if I could make one improvement, and it's, an, you know, the, the problem is sometimes these companies listen a little too closely to the, uh, um, to the purists. I would have put a one in eight twist barrel um, in it. And I mean, it would have been the same contour and everything, but you, then you could have shot uh, heavier loads which would have been nice, but instead they went with the one in 12 um, because they wanted to make it authentic. And the problem with that is the gun's not authentic anyway because it's got the slip ring because that's the best way. They, they had a different way of putting the handguards on the, the Proto AR. Um, so I, I'm like, you know, hey, I would, I would take a one in eight barrel and be very, very happy. Because it'll shoot the 55 stuff really well, and it'll shoot heavier loads well. But as it is, we got the 1 in 12, so um, not a big deal because most of the stuff I shoot um, is 55 grain anyway. So there you go. So it, it really doesn't matter, but um, it would have been nice to have them a little more flexible. But the AR is an outstanding rifle, and uh, uh, they're a lot of fun. They're certainly very cool. Uh, yeah, and just as a, as an aside, I love the Israeli FAL. Um, it has a cool 1950s sci-fi look to it, and I have a um, a G3 clone that's got the uh, German wood on it, and it has a very 1950s sci-fi look to it, which I really like. So, um, yeah, those are those are three fun fun guns that are out there to shoot. Okay, next question. That is, have you heard the Biden administration is withholding school funds for any school that has a weapons training program, I, like small bore rifle or archery? Uh, yes, I've heard that. 
um, I probably should have put this up into the political section, but you know, the, the only thing I'll say about it is you, you, sometimes we get the government we deserve and we, we all can't be experts. All the dumbbell Republicans that voted for that, it was in that, you know, that gun control bill they passed last year that really didn't do anything. Well, this was one of the little hidden things. And so now it's coming back because now kids that can't, a school can't even have an archery program. Archery, you know, because these people hate. It goes to the fundamental core of what a liberal is and what a Democratic Party person is. And I, I consider all Democrats now are these radical, they're all radicalized. I mean, they, they, they're just as bad as the jihadists in many ways. They do not want you to have any kind of weapon to defend yourself with. And I always wonder why in the world is that? And the answer is they feel that disenfranchised or picked on um, of these microculture groups that we have in our country, that somehow they're owed the ability to get even with you and me. And if we can't have weapons, we can't defend ourselves. And therefore, we are subject to the mob justice, you know, the mob terrorism and everything else. Um, it's, it's psychotic. And that's why, that's why the country is so polarized. And that's why people will fight rather than give up their firearms. It's the way it is. That's just the way it is. Okay, next question. Do you have any experience with 500 Smith & Wesson, 480 Ruger, or 460 Smith & Wesson? Uh, the answer is no. I have a rule that um, I don't shoot guns that hurt me, <laughs> so I don't do that. I do have experience with 50 Action Express and a Desert Eagle. Um, that's really kind of as big as I want to go. Uh, 44 Magnum, I really don't even shoot full house Magnum loads. I, I have occasionally, but I don't I don't shoot those a lot. Um, you know, that's just it. Th those are those guns were made for hunting. I do not handgun hunt, so therefore I find their use to be very, very limited for me. Um, for a person who handgun hunts, they're probably awesome. So, uh, no, I do not. Um, and if I did, I would probably be a very boring subject because I would actually just load them down and shoot big lead bullets out of them so <laughs> I wouldn't shoot the screaming hot load so no I don't but I do like them I think they're awesome and uh, I'd like to uh, I actually like to play with them I did shoot <clears throat> I've told this story before but I'll tell it again uh, I think the most powerful hand the two most powerful handguns I've shot one was a customized Remington XP100 in 223. I fired it. It hurt my wrist. I didn't really like it. So after one shot, I handed it back to its owner and said, you know, go forth and conquer. This is your deal, not mine. Another one I fired was a 454 Casul. And I fired it once. It hurt like anything, but I actually hit a 10. You know, I hit the X ring with it. And it was a brilliant shot. I mean, it looked really good. I knew that if I fired it again, I'd probably flinch and maybe even miss the target. But, I mean, it hurt. So I, I gave it back to its owner and said, thank you for letting me shoot that. That's great. But it's not my deal. You know, go forth and conquer. Um, I think that's a brilliant, 
they're brilliantly made. Freedom Arms were just brilliantly made guns. I mean, they, I don't, I guess they're still around. I don't know. Um, brilliantly made, brilliantly executed. But, you know, I don't, I just don't need that kind of recoil. Um, I'm more of a service cartridge kind of guy. And that goes with rifles. And, you know, the one rifle that I've always wanted, which I won't get because of my rule that I don't shoot guns that hurt me, um, I've always wanted a 416 Rigby. And they're relatively affordable for, you know, 1000 to $1,100. You can, you can buy one, you know, one of the CZ ones. Um, and I've always wanted one just because of the tradition of the Rigby cartridge, the big Mauser Magnum action, all that. Um, but since I had my eye surgery and had my had my cataract surgery, I'm really a little leery about shooting such a powerful gun. Plus the fact, I think they cost five or six dollars a shot. I think 20 rounds cost you 175 bucks. Now I can hand load, but you know, for the investment I would make in the rifles, the ammunition, the dies, and all the other good stuff. I mean, it, it just wouldn't pay off. I wouldn't shoot it enough to, to do that. And I, I do not uh, um, want to go to Africa. So, um, therefore, you know, as, as kind of a, a range toy, it would be fun. But it's really, uh, I, ha I was interested in that about 15 years ago, and I'm not interested in it anymore. Just, that's just the way it is. Um, for the same amount of money, uh, I... I was able to put together a Thompson SBR and it's an outstanding gun. So, and that's a lot more fun for me than a, than a big elephant uh, killing boomer that I would, uh, that I would shoot once every three or four years. You know, it goes to back to that uh, thing I was telling about, you know, people who buy these, these kind of weapons. And I was using the machine guns as, you know, by the time you get it out, the effort put into all of this, versus the enjoyment you know when you first get it you take it out three or four times a year then you take it out twice a year then you don't take it out the next year then you take it out once more and then decide to sell it because the uh <laughs> the, the hassle is is just more than it's worth you know and and the big elephant boomer would probably be the same thing to me too but it doesn't mean i can't appreciate it because i really like them um it'd be a lot of fun to have but there's other fun things to have too so Anyway, that's it for this edition of Old School Guns, the podcast that tells you exactly like it is, episode number 178. And um, again, if you have any questions or comments, email them to me at kbmakel at aol.com, kbmakel at aol.com, or put them in the comments section of Podbean. But until next time, this is Old School Guns, out. <laughs>